Welcome to our Twitter spaces. This is the last one for this year. Our speakers are here. So we may start with Kevin and Senga and then come back to Ruben and Kwame later. So start off with maybe introducing yourself. Let's start with Kevin. Tell us about what you do day, day by day. Thanks, Eric. If you all can hear me, good evening to you all. My name is Kevin Mainangige, and I'm currently uh, heading the equities desk at Jenkins Capital. I've been in the market for more than a decade now. Having started off earlier on at Genghis, then I did, I think my longest stint was at Equity Investment Bank, which was then a joint venture with Exotics based in London, uh, where we handled both equities and fixed income. Thereafter, I moved to NCB Investment Bank and finally came back home at uh, Genghis Capital where again, as I mentioned, we do all, so derivatives, equities, fixed income, you name it. I'm happy to be here. So maybe mine will just be a touch on equities and things we've seen throughout the year and uh, probably my focus for the year uh, 2022. We'll come back to you on the, then you can give us a lowdown of the market. June, you can introduce yourself. Hi, Eric. Uh, thank you for inviting me. For those who may not know me, my name is June Odongo. I am CEO of Senga Technologies. We're, we're a logistics uh, company operating from Nairobi, serving businesses across Kenya. We mostly focus on intra-country trade, so moving goods for people who trade from virtually anywhere to anywhere in Kenya with a particularly specific focus on retail. Thank you. Uh, Ruben, you can tell us what you do and introduce yourself. Thank you. My name is Ruben, and again, thanks for the invitation. I'm an economist. I say I work in econ and finance. On work capacity, I'm the Africa Regional Coordinator at UNEP Finance, the arm of the uh, UNEP uh, that works on sustainability in financial markets. Uh, so we lead the force investment sector. Yeah, so I lead that for the Africa region. And I must say I'm a big fan of Mongo Capital. Yeah. The structure of this, today's conversation is a little bit of a reflection on 2021, a little bit about markets. I think Kevin will give us a lowdown on what's happened in the markets. And then we'll discuss a little bit of uh, the challenges maybe small businesses are facing with June. And then Ruben and Kwame will be joining us later. We'll also give us a macro perspective. And then as we head into next year, what kind of like the points. It's a bit of an open discussion. So if you really want to speak, especially in the second hour, you can request to speak and come and have a conversation with us. A lot of events have happened this year. We actually launched Mongo Capital this year. We just hit 10,000 followers, I think, last week. So it's a, quite a milestone for us. So reflecting on the year, it's also been a really good one for us. But maybe not most small businesses can actually say the same. I would want to start first with the markets, kind of low down on what happened in the markets. Kevin, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Thanks, Eric. So the NSC really outperformed many investors' expectations, especially on this period of the pandemic and the ballooning. Just as a brief background, of course, the NSC was started in 1954. And we saw the demutualization of the exchange. So that meant that the NSC could list its shares on its exchange back around, I think, in 2014. We have a couple of indices so that measure the market performance and good for index-based funds. So we have the NSC All Share Index, uh, popularly known as NASI, that just it, it's a market uh, capitalization weighted index. We also have the NSC 25, we have the NSC 20, we have the NSC coming together with FTSE to create the NSC 
FTSE Kenya 15 index, and we have the FTSE NSE Kenya 25 index as well. We have around 65 listed companies. Of course, the biggest one, as you all might know, is Safaricom. We have all the main banks listed, agricultural stocks, investments, allied, and so on and so forth. If you look at the NASI, the all share, it's weighted and based on 100. So having started off in around 2008 at 100 as the base, we are now, I think we're close to the at around 164 and around 1800 on the NSC20. So I think the biggest performer or the biggest uh, stock that most investors and analysts have been watching during the year has been Safaricom. Of course, the biggest news uh, moving into Ethiopia and thereafter subsequent news of Tigray happening. We saw a jump in the share price earlier on during the speculation and when the news was finally announced, having gone to levels of 43, which were the all-time highs in Safaricom. And then thereafter, as people, of course, they just the news and uh, noticed it was becoming harder and harder to do uh, business in Ethiopia with the ongoing conflict. We saw the share dip to around 30, almost 35, 60, and now we're back to our levels of 38. Uh, so there's still room for that. We've seen, of course, the banks, the top banks, especially equity and KCB, perform, I think, most of the other stocks and a bit of Barclays and ABSA here and there. The agricultural stocks, of course, we've seen Kakuzi, a very good performer in Limuruti, despite the illiquid nature of those stocks. And on investments, I think we've seen Centum performing the rest. So mine is brief. I think if anyone has any questions on any of the stocks or the market in general, you can shout. Under the NSC, we have uh, four main segments. We have the main investment segment, which I think most of the investors are aware of. That's where your big market cap stocks are listed. So your banks, your safaricoms. Then we have an alternative investments. Then we have uh, the growth investments. And we also have a, a, a program, which I think some of you might be aware of, called the Booker program, where small and medium-sized companies are brought, incubated. And when they're ready, that we're talking about refixing the organizational structure in terms of bringing the auditors, looking at the board, the executive. And then once they're ready to come to market, then they list onto the GEMS program. So perhaps a question that we want to do, so this is the year um, companies at NSU so decided to do share buybacks, so maybe a little bit of context and what companies have done so far in terms of what a share buyback is. And also generally across the counter, except Safaricom, we find like most companies haven't done so well this year. So like what needs to happen for them to be shaken up a little bit, especially heading into an election year? I'll start with your latter question. So... One thing to note about the NSE is it's a market that uh, is supported north of 85% by foreigners. So you'll find that almost every specific day you'll have uh, foreigners doing 75% of the purchase or sales. And then the rest is split between retail and local institutional investors. And uh, I'd count that as also ESC investors. So whenever you see a big move in the market, say we're talking about 1.2 billion cash in Tanova, you'll always find around eight to 900 uh, million Kenyan shillings of that is uh, foreign investments. So what happened is earlier on, of course, when the world was getting a grip, and I'm talking about, well, the world had already gotten a grip of the COVID and everything that was happening. And uh, of course, that hit us since we see the FDI flight. So we see the capital flight out of our markets and country in general, back to safer havens. And they're talking about the Western uh, countries. In addition to COVID, I think one of the other things that has really hit NSE in a way is what is ongoing with our neighbors. So you look at in Tanzania, of course, 
my time first note that Kenya is the biggest market in East, I think, in Central Africa. So earlier on, we saw, of course, the Tanzania lose their president and there was quite some uncertainty around who will be taking over. I had the rumors about parliament not wanting Suluhu, so that also was a concern in the region. If you move up north to the Horn, Tigray has happened in Ethiopia. Eritrea is not, not all that uh, stable. Then came the Sudan coup. There was Somalia and the citizens or residents there debating the results. Uh, once you move again to Uganda, you'll see that now some of the military guys in Uganda have invaded the organized groups in Congo. I think the only market that we've seen quite some uh, positive sentiment on has been Rwanda with all the tech-led innovations over there and, in, and foreign direct investment. So Kenya, despite being quite peaceful, we know the election yes is coming next year. We haven't seen much of the campaign. I think that's going to get heated around January, February. And that's when we're going to really, and we'll talk about that later on how we expect the market to perform. The general consensus is if you look at the last four or five years towards the election, and we're talking about Kenya, towards the Kenyan election is the market has actually, we've seen quite a balloon or a bump in turnover. And we've actually uh, seen quite some good numbers, even when you look at the benchmark indices, the NSC20 and the, and the All Share Index. So there's debate about that and how the election is going to be in where the share prices will be. But again, generally throughout the year, we saw some ups and downs. We saw some, some periods where the market was sort of stagnant. And by that, is these were periods where the market was neither moving up or down. And if you look at, say, Safaricom, which is uh, accounts for around 59 to 60% of the total market capitalization. So if there's no movement on Safaricom, then you expect the market generally to be lull. And if I go on and add uh, stocks like KCB and equity and East African breweries to that, then if there are no movements on those, generally what you call the blue chips, the rest of the market, there's sort of a lull in the market. And that's when you see some retail investors are going to trade weird stocks like you'll see guys trading, you know, Limuruti, 100 shares of that, or Kakuzi, or Monero Business Ventures, and such, uh, and so on and so forth. So another question that I've been asked generally is, someone says, okay, Kenya Re is up 10% today, or Nero Business Ventures is up 10% today, or Portland Cement for that matter. And they're like, okay, so what's happening in these companies? And one of the things I've always told investors is, don't just look at the stock was up 10% today. Also check what is the size traded? That's the volume or the turnover. And that can easily tell you if it's just retail speculation or just someone doing some shady business. But generally, most of the foreigners we are talking about are only on the, the blue chips. So we are talking about the main banks and Safaricom. And most of the institutional investors tend to sort of copy what the uh, foreign investors are doing. And that's when you'll see that if something significant happens, be that COVID or election, or whatever is happening, foreigners will sort of take a, a wait and watch approach. And therefore you'll set, tend to see local institutional investors and ESC investors, which most are domiciled in Uganda, also tend to keep off from the market. And that's when we start seeing more of inflows in fixed income assets and so on. So I, I don't know if I've answered your latter question. Going to the buybacks, it was a first for us in the country. I think we saw that with uh, NMG. And there are now talks with uh, Centum doing that. So the CMA, together with the NSC, which is a self-regulating uh, regul organization or SRO, 
amended some of their acts and allowed for some of these things to happen. And there are more coming in the market. And it's not just the share buyback. We've seen a couple of initiatives, including at the day trading. People ask questions for what is day trading and how does it work? And we'll get to that. We've seen day trading and now there's share buybacks. And there's one more. I don't know why I've forgotten that one more. I'll come back to it. So on share buybacks is generally the companies that have listed the shares coming back to the market uh, when the market prices are conducive for that specific share. Say NMG, for for instance, they listed a share, say, at, for instance, 10 shillings 10 years ago over the course of the market, over the course of the years, the share has gone, say, to 25, 30, 40 maybe. And then something happens, be it the numbers, be it the just general market sentiment, and the share goes back to 18 shillings. So the company sees that, okay, this share, if you look at the fair value of this share, it's around maybe 32 shillings. And we are trading at 18 shillings. That's almost half of it. So it would be conducive for the company to come back to the market, to the shareholders, uh, the owners of the stock, and say, okay, we're going to buy this share at 25 shillings. And you find they've given you a 10 or 12% premium to sell your shares. So they can buy these shares, uh, hold them. And when the prices recover, so north of 32 shillings, which was their fair value, they can always come back to the market and resell this or sell it to a strategic investor. So that's essentially in a nutshell what share buyback is. And we've seen that again, as I mentioned, from Nation Media Group and Center are in talks to also conduct theirs. If we're talking about Nation Media Group and Standard in particular, the media has really been hit uh, on the NSE, in part due to, of course, their clientele has moved to digital channels. The print press has really, print press has really uh, suffered. Not many Kenyans nowadays buy newspapers. Most of us who work in offices will go and you'll find uh, one newspaper per office. You know, our parents who used to buy the papers, most of them no longer buy it or a few of them buy, but the majority of the new consumer, you know, the youth will generally absorb news via digital channels. So some will, yes, subscribe to their digital channel subscriptions and pay the 700 shillings per year to receive, for instance, a national newspaper. Others will receive news via alternative channels. We have Twitter, we have Instagram, we have Facebook, you name it. And uh, so it's become really a struggle and not most of us, again, are, are, are watching or consuming uh, television and such shows. So it's become a really, really uh, big task for print companies and generally media companies to break even. Someone who works in the media industry was telling me the plan for most of these media and citizen in particular is they've now focused on creating a local TV or those quote-unquote tribal TVs. So if you're in Nyeri, you know, you create an Inoro TV. If you're in Kisumu, you create a Ramogi TV, basically traversed uh, throughout the country. Because the idea or the reasoning behind it was, if you move to the cities, you know, you're talking about your big cities, is most of these uh, clients uh, generally don't watch TV. So TV viewership is higher mostly in rural or uh, semi-urban areas. And that, of course, advised uh, their reasoning to just create these TVs in those areas. The other reason, again, why they're creating some of these uh, channels off outside Nairobi is, and someone was telling me, was instead of bringing someone, if there's a hot news, say a breaking news or something, it becomes harder to bring someone to Nairobi to interview them if you want to do a big interview. But if you create a local uh, TV station, say like the Ramogi, then if you want to interview Raila and his domicile in Kisumu, it becomes easier for him to be interviewed at Ramogi, and then they can mirror that uh, back to Nairobi, more of what KTN does. 
So they have their two stations, one, the main one in, at INDM, and they have the other one on Mombasa Road. So if you were on that side or say even Mombasa and you're coming this, you don't need to get yourself to town uh, for that interview or wherever. You can just do it at Mombasa Road and then can just be mirrored back to INDM in the CBD. Eric, have I answered your question? Yes, I think now I'll switch over from markets to maybe small businesses. Arjun, maybe you can tell us a little bit how your experience has been. It's been like the second year now of the pandemic. You can tell us how your business is doing and what's kind of how small businesses generally are doing around you also in the logistics business. Okay, I'll try to be concise and then you can just ask me uh, follow up questions if you like. As a business ourselves, we've done well this year. We've grown notably since last year. However, I'm not sure that's necessarily representative. We are a small business and it's one of the situations where we kind of have no option but to grow. We work primarily with manufacturers and retailers and traders. And I think even before the pandemic, we started to see a notable slowdown, particularly in consumer goods, including even food. I should also say our company started in 2016, so we have not actually operated in a thriving economic environment. From the business perspective, we don't have an experience of a good environment because when the, the year we started was just ahead of an election period and we're going into another election period. And it, in terms of transportation, what we do see is dips begin to happen even before the election period itself. And I think that has already started to occur even in 2021. So the pandemic, I feel, accelerated an already shrinking economy and started to push down or push out businesses that were beginning to struggle or were struggling. We've seen a number of those in different areas. I've seen struggling companies in food, like basic food, even things like flour. have seen that in events companies, so just general shrinkage and in terms of companies that we've seen sort of go out of business or goods we've moved less, I would say a lot of small companies sort of have shrunk or just disappeared completely. And big companies that had some resilience or experience in the market, some of them ended up thriving a little bit once companies started to go out of business. Another thing we've seen that I think is worth mentioning is before 2021, Senga had never had any bad debt. Like we've literally never written off bad debt from a customer. For the first time ever, we will have to do that. Our aged receivables have been increasing. Like people used to pay us within one to two months. And now we see people paying us four months, five months, six months. So that's a big concern. We've even had to do things like, for example, just stopping to serve people until they pay us. So I would say that's sort of like a widespread kind of trend in terms of difficulty in meeting payments, I would say across the board. And I would say we encounter that more so actually, I think, with bigger farms, uh, not exclusively bigger farms, but with bigger farms. And then, of course, there's things like increase in price of fuel, the supply chain issues, or just the global ones that are being experienced everywhere in the world and trickling down here as well. I imagine people know this, but the cost of, for example, shipping containers from abroad to here has increased by many, many multiples. So there's increase in cost of transport of international transportation, particularly importation. And then there's the supply chain delays that were happening. So things getting stuck in different ports, not just locally, but internationally. 
So that means it takes long for traders or businesses to obtain or acquire raw materials. The costs have increased to bring them in. And then there's lots of pricing pressure in the goods that are you know, produced with these materials. What is happening, though, is that in spite of the cost of petroleum going up, and it's been going up for quite a while, and the cost of transportation going up, prices of goods are not increasing in tandem with that. We, as transportation providers or service providers, as well as the manufacturers and traders themselves, are having to absorb or having to suppress margins. Like everyone's trying to cut down costs as much as they can, but also taking in lower margins because increasing price will lead to restricted consumption. So that's, I think, another interesting thing that has happened this year. We have completely been unable to increase price just to keep not just the economy going, but keep ourselves going. Yeah, let me leave it at that. And you can ask me follow-on questions if you like. All right. Maybe to follow up on that, how was business like before the pandemic? And maybe can from the businesses that you're seeing, what kind of strategies are they using maybe to survive this very difficult time? And what mm-hmm. needs to change? And at least especially from help from other businesses and maybe people in government who may be listening in terms of trying to help small businesses survive these difficult times or so. I feel we've seen different tactics with different companies, including our own. Before the pandemic, there was already a slowdown before the pandemic. So my view is that the economy was shrinking anyways. I mean, one of the things I found interesting was, was that without naming the firm, like one of the biggest, you know, like rice producers and so on, they had started shrinking around like 2018. And we saw that in a number of other places. So at least where we're sitting, the pandemic has just accelerated that trend. It did not introduce it. We've been in a bad economy for a while. Again, like in our case, we've grown. And we do have, for example, customers that have been growing during the pandemic period. And I would say almost exclusively, they are sort of like the best run companies that were able to sustain, for example, the demand shocks that happened when the pandemic began and then just came out with a bang once curfews and so on lifted. And so I don't want to say sort of took over, but kind of took market from folks who had slowed down. Because when the pandemic happened, I remember some businesses actually just shut down and they said, you know, we don't have enough demand to stay open. So some people just stayed closed um, for a while. Right. And for those who stayed open or took that time period to adapt and even improve their products, we're seeing that they're the ones actually towards the end of the year now that are doing significantly better. I I think many of us would agree that the government is pretty unfriendly to businesses, particularly now where a lot of accommodation is required simply because all kinds of costs are going up. So, for example, even with the collections problem that I was mentioning, regardless of whether someone is paying us or not, we have to pay our VAT. The VAT has to be submitted on the 20th. And if you don't submit on the 20th, on the 21st at between 8 and 9 a.m., some carry person is going to email you, right? Just the government taxes themselves. So they create some kind of a cash flow problem in an already very restrictive cash flow environment. 
I think especially with government, you're going to come to that. I read the interview with the KRA chair today, and I think he's still very keen on roping in even more people from the informal sector into their tax brackets. And so I feel like uh, reprieve may not be, com- be coming anytime soon, especially from the KRA. So I think we'll discuss that as part of the macro section later. Mm-hmm. But perhaps maybe one thing I wanted to ask you is mm-hmm. what kind of best practices have you seen around in terms of running your own business and maybe mistakes you've made that you'd like to share, especially this year, that you've learned from so that others as they set up their own businesses also can also incorporate that? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> but um... I like asking tough questions to you. Yeah. What kind of mistakes have we made? I mean, I think if you'll allow me, I'd also talk about sort of some good calls we made. Um, I think in terms of mistakes we made, I, I think being tentative, I think Senga has sort of tentative for quite a while. Like in our case, we have a good service, a good product that people like, but we were always afraid of growing. Well, I don't know if the right word is afraid, but I don't think we gassed up things in, in the way we could have. So we kind of took too long thinking about capital. Should we accept external capital? Okay, who's going to give us that capital? And I think we could have just had, I think, more faith. Or or even if we had faith, I think, like, put our money where our mouth is as far as faith is concerned. So I think I would tell people to just not be tentative and to go for it. Time is money. I can say, for example, for a long time, we were just very, very cash constrained, even though we had a profitable business. And when you're very cash constrained and you're just wondering how you're going to survive day to day. So, for example, this work we simply couldn't accept from customers who wanted to work with us because we didn't have money to finance them. And then we also have very strict credit requirements. So, for example, in our company, we do not work with anyone who cannot pay within 30 to 45 days. But once upon a time, it was two weeks to 30 days. Right. So it made it made us sort of inflexible. And then. You know, you also sort of get tired when you're worrying about money all the time. Your decision-making capacity sort of deteriorates, at least minded, because you're worried about day-to-day instead of thinking a a bit more strategically. In terms of good calls, for me, I definitely saw uh, the pandemic as an opportunity. Again, Senga has not existed in a thriving economic environment. So for me, the way I looked at it was, what do we offer that people will want in the pandemic? Or what have we learned so far that we can extend as a service in the pandemic? And with the thought that if we can do well, not only in a strained economic environment, but in a pandemic, then we will be fine moving forward. So specifically around trying to figure out, for example, for customers, cost-effective means to move things in this, what we're experiencing with very high costs and so on. So I would say for us, I think we've done a decent job of that. And I'm looking forward to what we will meet on the other side of the, the pandemic. And I would say also with our clients who we're seeing have done well, they used this time period to, for example, just market in spite of low consumer demand, innovate with, you know, better food products. We move a lot of food and we've seen people improve their products, increase the range of products, and they seem to be the ones who are doing well now, even though we're still in the pandemic. You have a unique story in terms of you studied abroad and then you came back. The key question is why would you come back to Kenya when a lot of people would prefer actually to be out there and stay out there? Okay, that's another question I didn't realize would be part of this topic. Um, (laughs) Why would I come back? Okay, so first of all, I should say that 
I didn't sort of like plan to come back home. I used to want to come back home a long time ago, around 2007, 2008. At that time, I had visited home and I was caught up in the clashes in two places, in Banana and in Kisumu. And it sort of threw off my intentions of coming back home for a long time. And when I did, which was at the end of 2015, I just happened to be coming home for the holidays and my mother was born on Christmas Day and it, we were going to have a birthday and I had just quit my job because I had wanted to start something. And I was like, well, since I'm coming home, why not just give it a try? So for me, it was an experiment. I was like, okay, I'll give myself six months to come up with something. And I had been thinking around like logistics ideas and other business ideas in different environments in different countries. So then I just sort of switched the context and I was like, okay, what would make sense here? And I said, okay, I'll give myself six months to figure out something. And if I don't, I go back. And if I figure it out in six months, then give it another 18 months. So it was sort of just time-based, but it wasn't like come back to Kenya sort of thing. Okay, why wouldn't I go back? I wouldn't say I wouldn't go back. I have to say Kenya is super, super, super hard. I mean, sometimes I wake up and ask myself, what was I thinking? <laughs> It's a very, very difficult company to operate in or even to start a business. You know, small things like the fact that you have to have an office even when you're starting something because people don't want you to be a briefcase company. We're very, very low trust and it creates a lot of strain and things take many times longer than they do in other developed economies. That said, I'm an extremely entrepreneurial person, so it was going to happen no matter where I was. In the US, the context would have been more like improving perfection, right? So we'd be coming up, yes, with nice products, but they're, they're not necessarily like game changing because it's already an environment where things sort of mostly work well. It's not to say that things don't work well here, but they do work well better there. Over here, I feel any impact that you make is very, very tangible and very rewarding. And, and that's at, at a lot of levels. It's from just the employment perspective, for example. We work with a lot of young people. Most of our team has primarily been fresh college graduates. And you imagine for them, okay, what would I have liked if I were 22 or 23 in a workplace? And do we have an opportunity, for example, to begin to set them up financially so that in the future they have opportunity to experiment and not be locked down to certain professions? And then even from like a service perspective, like for me, some of our customers produce products that I have used since I was a child. And I literally love our clients. I think all businesses everywhere are relationship-based, but I just feel like here the impact is just more tangible. I don't know how to explain it. And then I, I also think just the opportunity, even though we are we're relatively a small economy, I think the opportunity is larger. There's just a lot of green space and what one needs, I think, is resilience. Yeah. Perfect. One final question before I switch to the macro would be for someone considering to start a business, what kind of considerations would you maybe share with them from your experience on what they should really think about as they start businesses? In terms of all the reflections that you've had in running your own business in a pandemic and growing it and being worried about cash flow, what are some of the tidbits you'd share with someone starting off or thinking of starting a business? Okay, I love this question so much. So I am a huge believer in Lean Startup. Everyone who comes into a company is required to read Lean Startup. And there's also something I recommend called Four Steps to the Epiphany, which is the parent to Lean Startup, which is just a way of thinking, like very lean in terms of how you're coming up with a product and not just whether it's the right product, but who will consume it. 
And it's effectively a process that if you follow, you're going to fail fast or, or pivot, which are the, th- the, the things you need to do in a startup. So I believe very much in experimentation, but experimentation in a lean way that is not wasteful. So for example, Senga bootstrapped for the longest time. I think we bootstrapped for four years. I don't necessarily recommend that because I mentioned, for example, like when you're broke, it really affects your decision making. But because we bootstrapped, we were able to make sure that we had a business model that was going to work. So we were not putting money behind something that was loss making. Uh, for example. So I'm a big believer in uh, starting small, finding out who your early adopters will be, getting quickly to a profitable business model (laughs) where you're not maybe going to burn cash for 10 years or something, saying you're still trying to figure out profit. When I get asked this question, I literally will send someone or ask them to find four steps to the epiphany and just follow it. And I promise they will see an outcome. Again, not all businesses can be built lean. If you're building like a nuclear power plant or something, that's not the way to go. And then in terms of just building a company, like in my case, for example, and you may know this, even though we haven't known each other for very long, I'm very sensitive to people and I'm very sensitive to alignment. If I just get a red flag about someone, uh, I will not work with that person. And that's true, whether it's from an investor perspective or even a client I think building businesses is so difficult that if you can see something that potentially will bring you trouble down the road, just stay away. For me, there are certain things just that simply do not have a price. And for us now that we're beginning to take external funding, even though it was very difficult, for example, coming up with an investor list or even zoning into the right person because of sort of the quote unquote strict requirements for who they needed to be. It's born fruit for us because right now the people we work with, we're very long-term focused. Senga is not, for example, like a financial instrument or pyramid scheme kind of startup. We're in Kenya, we're in an African context that is difficult, but also has a lot of opportunity. Are you willing to put in even 10 years to grow this? So I, I think alignment for me is extremely important. And also, if you just have a negative feeling, just trust yourself even if you're questioning and think you might be wrong. In terms of team, I don't think we've necessarily nailed this. I have to say, because of the emotional strain of building a business, I would say, for example, I'm not the manager I imagined to be. And in fact, I was a better manager before I started a business because my identity is or was so tied to the business that there's an emotional response, which I I don't think is not is the best thing necessarily from a CEO. But I do believe in building the kind of company that I've always imagined or wanted to build. The way I think about this with Senga is that I don't know if there's necessarily going to be an opportunity for another business. So the first time we're doing it, why not just try to be the company we would have imagined? So that means also not necessarily uh, conforming to start a school. For example, right now we have this discussion back and forth in our company around contracts and like laws. For example, I don't believe in like 21 day leave, right? But it's the law. And I'm like, but people should take time, whatever time they want to take. And HR says, no, 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 you have to put in 21 days. So it's like, okay, how can we build a culture where people know that they're free to take time off (laughs) when they want to take time off and not be restrictive? Uh, So yeah, one chance, go for it. Be lean, don't waste other people's money. Figure out quickly, whether you should fail and adjust quickly and then invite other people to join you. 
just a, a quick one from our teammate here. Uh, what does Senga mean? By the way? Oh, good question. So, okay. So Senga means to, tra- to ship or to transport in a Zimbabwean dialect called but in Uganda, it is the auntie who prepares women uh, for their husbands when they're getting married. But we didn't know that until we had secured a URL. So it was too late. Um, now I'll switch to the macro section a little bit. I have Kwame and Ruben here. So Kwame Karibu and Ruben Pia. So I'll start with uh, Ruben. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your observations this year. Uh, and I know you're, you're keen, especially on ESG. So maybe you can talk about the trends that you've seen around East Africa and Africa and the world over in terms of ESG and reflections on this year and going into the next year also. Thanks, Eric. Uh, a lot has been happening in the macro space. And the first caveat, anytime I talk about the economy, is that the economy is what is happening or everyone is experiencing and not really the headline numbers because it's very easy to you know get lost in what is being reported in the newspaper in the news and all that but the first one i want to mention because i was discussing this uh, with a friend is uh, i'm sure many of you have had a chance to look at our exchange rate movement we are now at 113 i don't know kwame will tell us where we potentially close at and that has been a lot, especially just listening to Jen talk about working with manufacturers. And I was just thinking what that means for everyone who's importing and using all these import goods, which they need to use for manufacturing. Yeah, I know it's a random place to start, but that has been on my head today because I had a discussion on the exchange rate. Just looking at growth, we've just had the Kenya Economic Update one or two days ago saying that in the last year, at least in the first half, uh, we rebounded in terms of growth, hitting 5.3% in the first half, at least going to pre-pandemic levels. I think for me, the, the observation at least I make of the economy and you know, just talking to people, I like talking to traders a lot, whatever type, as long as someone is a trader, I like engaging, uh, is, is resilience. My feel has been at least for the last two, two and a half years, the Kenya economy is very resilient. Sometimes it takes a beating. I think there have been two moments this year, which I think were particularly bad in my observation. I don't know if you all remember that there was the announcement of the lockdown just before Easter. I think for me, that was like a break point because there seemed to be a little bit of asymmetry between a citizen sentiment and expectation around policy, what would happen and what ended up being announced. Because I know uh, a lot of businesses were not liquid, and they had said, especially in the hospitality sector and transport sector, like, you know, probably this is the time to rebound with Easter. And I think that announcement just before Easter, if anyone, you know, cares to do a study, that was like one event that really saw uh, many businesses actually curve. Uh, That was extremely, I guess, painful. I think the second one is what we are currently seeing with a new variant and just as people expecting recovery and of course there's this ecological effect that we are going to a new year and now seeing the COVID numbers are up. Anyone who saw today our positivity rate for COVID numbers was at 22.4 percent which is extremely high for the number of cases and you've all been seeing memes because I think Kenyans do well communicating through memes. So with the influenza, with COVID, I think this makes you know quite a bit of a moment in terms of expectations across the, uh, the, the economy. Two things also I want to highlight is, and I think here globally and how they relate, globally we are seeing very high inflation now. And for those who may have missed, you know, places like US, they experienced like the highest inflation in 39 years. They hit 6.8% last month, which means effectively they had higher year-on-year inflation than Kenya. 
And uh, of course, we expect that this is going to uh, roll over into emerging and developing markets. I don't think it's great. And of course, it depends which side you're looking at from. We're in an environment where there's reduced private consumption because income levels have been affected. So with inflationary pressure, that becomes too much for the household and, and as we'd call it. Speaking of inflation, two things to highlight. Of course, a lot of the inflation is around uh, fuel and food. On the fuel side, we saw some fuel price pressures. That is, as it stands, the issue of fuel prices is a national issue. We've recently seen the task force by government on energy prices. I've seen Mongo Capital tweet uh, a, a lot on that. And I, I want to hope that we're going to have positive outcome that is going to lead to lower energy prices, at least for households, even if it's in power consumption, because that's a very huge component of the kind of pressure people get on spending. But the other one is on the food. Food prices have been on an increase. And by here, I mean food for human, but also like animal feeds the value chain are pretty much uh, similar and uh, the drought doesn't help. We know that this year drought was announced as a national disaster and uh, I think that's particularly bad. I, I think to top of my concerns going to 2022 is actually around food inflation. It's something that is that is bugging me quite a bit since there's domestic pressures, drought and rain patterns, then the supply chain which has been affected and of course that flowing into like inflation and I don't know how that is going to work. And of course, something else we have to mention now, we, we are slightly just over nine months into the next election on 9th August. So I, I think psychologically, the political risk associated with the election is going to start kicking in. And what is particularly interesting going into this election, it's a very charged political atmosphere. I think that's the best way to say it. There's a lot of income and financial challenge across the country. And as we know, we even have a huge segment of people who've been pushed into extreme poverty during the COVID pandemic. But also, we, also, we are seeing signs of there's going to be a lot of uh, expenditure going into the election. What that means for the money supply in terms of not in the economic sense of the word, but in terms of spending by the political class versus low-income citizenry, I think that is something to observe. So I don't know whether election finance laws will be observed. Probably not. But I think that is going to be interesting going to the election. Something I want to comment on, Eric, and probably stop there, is around vaccine. There's been the issue about vaccine equity or vaccine apartheid and everything else that is happening, let me say, across the African continent. I mean, it's really sad that while some markets are focusing on booster shots, we only have 4.5% of the African population vaccinated. And I think there's been a lot of talk about enhancing uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity in Africa. I just read a communique by the AU, I think, two or three days ago. But, but we all know that these things won't happen as fast as we want them to. If we have our folks from government listening, I think we need more practical approaches to just reaching people faster on their vaccination drive, just to make sure we have as many people getting access to the vaccine within the uh, adult population. So yeah, yeah, there are a couple of factors, and Eric, I'm happy to answer any more specific questions on the economy. I think I'll come back to you later. Let me hear Kwame. Kwame, how is the state of the nation going into an election year? What are your reflections on this year? Well, okay, I think I should speak about two things. One of them is this year, we saw the full effects of what happened last year. And part of what happened last year was that convergence of supply and demand shocks based on COVID. Part of it obviously was also the state of the Kenyan economy, 
So I'll say something which is repetition. I think part of it was government of Kenya could not respond adequately because there's just no fiscal space, but more importantly, because what was designed as a stimulus just wasn't sufficient. So that's the background. Now, at the beginning of the year, of course, there's this expectation that the forecast, which usually is, I think people think that economists take those forecasts too seriously, and we should, but not for the same reason that the media and everybody says. I think forecasts are supposed to be contextual narratives. Nobody, if anybody tells you that they, they landed in, a, in an economics class what next year's growth rates would be, they're lying, or they had a, should I call it a certificate, we do, if I may use something like that. But the main issue is that it was evident that I think the forecast at the beginning of the year were far too rosy, 7.1%. It's since been revised down. Uh, our thinking is that, in our view, it will probably be a little lower than 5 or just about tripping that. Because if you look at the first two quarters, first one was about 1%, the second one was about 2%. It would take a massive quarter three to actually get us anywhere closer to the... 5.86% that the Treasury was using to plan numbers this year. So that's the one part. The second part is to come to our belief that if you're going to call something a stimulus, and let me say what a stimulus is in the language of conventional economics, there are ideological differences about whether it's effective or not. But talking about what a Keynesian stimulus is, is usually that when resources are lying idle, where people don't have jobs and farms are not hiring, it means resources are lying idle. So one of the things that those who believe in Keynesian stimulus say is that basically government can actually borrow money and or create credit and actually use that money to get those resources that are idle to be occupied and then to generate value and output. So that's a conventional wisdom. In Kenya, last year, of course, government tried some moves here and there, spent a little bit of money. But our view is that the stimulus effect that came from a fiscal policy response, the bigger one, or rather the only effective one was a tax cut. So you can do that stimulus in two ways. One, by borrowing and spending more money. Or two, which is what most governments in the West and those who had, and I think even in South Africa did, in Kenya because there was very little scope, debt and everything was already too bad, what government could do was just to provide relief by giving people a tax cut. I think that was a brilliant idea, but of course, the belief that government should grow through spending overcame them, and then at the beginning, of, at the end of December, it was cut back. But the economy was recovering anyway because as it became clear that COVID is serious, but it's not, it wasn't as devastating. Uh, it must have dropped. I hope it reconnects. In the meantime, I would say we are past the one-hour mark. So if you want your questions to be featured, just go to a pinned tweet, just below a pinned tweet. You can type your questions there, and then we will take a few of the questions and forward them. You can address them to a specific speaker. If not, we can ask them generally to let us know. Secondly, also, you can send us a DM. You can also request to speak. It's a bit of an open session today. Along the way, if you if you feel there are some reflections that you want to share with us about the year and the outlook for going into the next year, it would be nice of you to just request to speak. In the meantime, I'll come back to maybe Kevin. Kevin, you can give us your outlook for 2022 in terms of especially stocks that are trading. Are there also companies that you're expecting maybe to list on the stock exchange next year? And is there anything that excites you about next year in the markets generally? Kevin? Yes, Eric. So a couple of things excite me in the market, in our markets uh, in general. So, of course, we have the expectation from a trader's perspective or a dealer's perspective is December and January are generally or typically cold or slow months. 
So when we look at international funds, that extends also uh, uh, to local institutional funds, is a couple of guys organize their holidays around the December, January period. So we tend to see quite some stunted growth or limited activity in the market. But thereafter, we expect to see four or five active months, of course, in light of the election in August, I think to be the second week of August. So we expect February, March, April, May, June, and maybe July to be active months as guys will generally then close off for the year in anticipation of the election. And of course, thereafter, if the markets will be calm and depending on who takes over and how the uh, country behaves. So Safaricom is one of the big stock that analysts and uh, investors and us traders are keen to watch. At 37 levels, I believe if you've been watching the markets the last two weeks, the stock has generally just picked up from the digestion of the Tigray and Ethiopia. So we expect Safaricom to really perform, especially if we are going to see some calmness in Ethiopia. And we know our president is now leading or is in the forefront in trying to bring about peace on that region. I don't expect it to happen overnight, but I think Safaricom is one of the biggest stocks to look at. And one thing I always tell investors and in general, retail or institutional or otherwise, is when you're looking to invest in Kenya, for instance, you cannot invest in Kenya and not be on Safaricom. It's good to have a diversified portfolio, but I think Safaricom accounting for 65% of our total market, you'd really be playing on thin margins if you're not on the telco. So, of course, the big banks are something to watch out for. But the expectation is they're going to announce a dividend this time around. I'm skeptical about that, considering that we have the Omicron now. I think three people, I don't know, I haven't checked the numbers today, but it's now in the country. We don't know how the coming months are going to be. It's everyone's guess on how this COVID is going to pan out. So my, I'd be very skeptical if the big banks are going to issue a dividend. My expectation is they're going to preserve as much capital as possible. And if they need to issue a dividend, maybe pass it through an AGM or something. So anyone there looking for dividends in terms of from their main banks, I'd be skeptical about that. But generally, the NSE has really done well. I was looking at the ASEA, and that's the organization that brings together the African exchanges. And ex-Egypt and SA, Kenya ranks number two or three. We are doing very well. I think the only bosses that have outperformed us have been the BRVM at 35%. But generally, if you look at the stocks in terms of uh, activity, in terms of turnover, we, we really, really do well. And BRVM, Mark you, is an organization of eight West African uh, countries. You know, your Botswana, your Niger, your Cote d'Ivoire, and the rest. So NSE has really done well. And I believe that, of course, has been due to the performance of the blue chips, more so the telco and the uh, top eight or so banks. So the expectation for next year is, of course, we've seen quite some good numbers on the banks or quite some decent numbers, if I may say. And uh, we foresee most of the banks, I think we've had this discussion a number of times on this space, is we foresee most of the banks are closing on a positive. So the performance that we've seen over the three quarters of the year, I think is going to be extended over to the full year numbers. So anyone on the NSC markets, do not panic, whether you're on the equities or the uh, fixed income. We've also seen rates generally, especially on the lower end, the 91, the 182 and the 364 generally come up. Of course, we know uh, the debt is a big issue for us and we expect, I, I think we're going to be raising around 696 billion over the next fiscal year. So 
I think we're going to see the government more and more still come into the primary market. And uh, I think that has also hindered, especially from local institutional investors from partaking in the equities, which is considered to be more riskier. So I, I foresee that still being the trend from institutional investors, but retail investors have really uh, outperformed themselves, if I may say. We've seen quite some uh, ballooning investments from them, especially when the year was locked down, you know, all these small and medium-sized, you know, the flower farmers, these coffee farmers, all these guys who had some uh, income and could no longer put it on their business due to the risky nature that we were in, especially in 2020 and earlier on this year, we saw some of that uh, capital come into the equities market, which was a big boost. I think uh, retail participation have, has moved from uh, slightly under 4% to around 7% now, which doesn't look like a big number. It's just 300 basis points. But in terms of value and volume, this has really uh, supported the NSE. Eric? A quick question from our friend Nderi. Uh, what do you think about NBV? Nairobi Business Venture. So uh, thanks, Nderi, for that question. So NBV, I think I mentioned earlier that today, I think I'd seen it's uh, up 8 or 9%. But uh, it's one of the small cap equities or one of the uh, small cap companies under the NSE. My personal uh, opinion on it, I never looked at it uh, a few years back until I think around uh, three, four, five months ago. And I started to, to like it when I started to see what they actually do, what products they're bringing to the market. But NBV has generally been a retail stock. And by that, I mean that you'll find most of the institutional investors will not touch it. And those that have, have touched it in just uh sort of like a shave just uh, uh, in a little bit if you look at the owners of the uh, publicly traded stock you'll generally find it's uh, mostly a retail stock so re the thing with retail stock or what is uh, synonymous with retail stock you'll find is that retailers will generally not support the market and by retail i mean you and i the individual investors will sort of tend to mirror in on the big movement. So if Safaricom is what is moving the markets, then you'll tend to see most people move with Safaricom. Or if it's the big banks, you'll then tend to see most people move with the big banks. The only time you'll see the likes of NBV, you know, your flame trees, most of the gems, other gem companies, you'll tend to see the movement in around 1,000, 2,000 shares. And thus, you never really, they tend to be somewhat sticky. And that's when in a day like today, when you find 800 shares of traded and the stock is 10% up, you, you, you sort of start asking yourself what's happening with the company. But really, uh, for me, it's not one of the stocks that I would actively put on my portfolio coming into 2022. Kwame is back, so I think I'll take the mic back to him so that Kwame can finish up on what he was saying before. All right. I don't know where you all lost me, but I was just, I think I'd spoken about uh, vaccine appetite, which I thought was a very strong language for what is really happening. So that's... My belief is that for a country like Kenya, for instance, with sufficient organization of the public finances, the government of Kenya should be able to pay for the vaccination of any adult or minor Kenyan who wishes to take the vaccine. I think this it's just basically about how the, the stuff is planned. And then coming to Forex, my view again is that if you look at it, Kenya's currency has been far too strong, comparing with the fact that I think since 2014, most 2016, most of the regional currencies had depreciated some by as much as 21-22%. Kenya's had actually gotten stronger if you take the real value. And at the same time, Kenya has serious trade deficit. One of the ways in which economics textbooks that should tells you that should happen is that an adjustment in currency. So an adjustment in the currency value was due. 
even if we hadn't had COVID and whatever is happening in the States right now, it was due. I think the policy of the central bank is to make sure that it glides slowly without volatility. That might be supported, but there are people who actually think as well that there's been a serious utilization of, of, of existing reserves to actually support it at some preferred area. For a long time, people used to talk about the psychological 100, up to until like a few weeks back, we were talking about a hundred, psychological 110. So I don't know how far it will go, but it was due for correction. And that's specifically is, is what has happened. I think regarding growth, this has been revised. 7.1 were some of the main estimates, informed by the fact that the economy would be growing from a low base. But it's been revised right now. I don't think that it would probably be above five, but I might be wrong. But if you look at the fact that the first two quarters for which reporting has been done, the first one was 1.2. The other was about two. Of course, there's the 10% number that was mentioned, but the context is that it's 10% against the worst quarter last year. So obviously, if you compare against a very bad quarter in which there's shrinkage, then it gives that impression. But on the whole, I think uh, 5% is probably what's going to be achievable for Kenya this year. Elections? I'm not too sure. Sometimes I actually think that we overstate the political risk that comes from elections in this country. But I think the next one is probably going to be a little different and perhaps not as volatile, because if you split elections in Kenya in two ways, one, whether you have an incumbent running, those tend to be more violent elections for very obvious reasons. There are lots of vested interests. And then an election in which there's two different people, whether one of them has been incumbent or not, tends to be a little less contentious, because the perception that the results could be manipulated or systems could be manipulated to direct it tends to be less, regardless of who this happens. I mean, that does. So I think that 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 tends to happen, of course, in addition to the lame duck effect, which we must never forget. What worries me, and this is one thing that is the confluence of failed rains and high food prices and high inflation and a very potent election moment. I think that's something to watch for. But my view is that it's probably going to be less so unless people just decide to escalate it than it was in 2017 and than it was in 2007. Yeah, thanks. Great. I think now we are more open to questions. I haven't seen many questions coming in, so I think I will still keep going with the guests. Senga has been quiet for a while, so maybe you can give us a little bit of perspective of your business outlook going into next year for your small business and maybe for the small business that you've seen around you. Okay. By the way, I, I agree almost 100% with what Kwame has said. And for, I think in general, I would say I have a negative outlook towards 2022. But for me, primarily, that is driven by just how much money the country owes and its seeming potential inability to pay it and what that means from what the government expects of businesses and citizens in terms of tax on top of everything else that's going on. So I personally expect more shrinkage around us. For our business independently, I mean... We're not reducing our projections, if you will. I was just doing projections this week and our, target, our targets, we try to uh, accomplish them regardless of what's going on around. But I'm not expecting a good year in 2022 for businesses or the businesses we serve. How are you setting up your business then for 2022 if your expectation is that negative? So I, I think... It alludes to a, a small comment I made without going into too much detail. Because we've primarily functioned in a strained environment, we're very, for example, cost conscious. And we're always trying to think about like, how do you move things cheaply and effectively? 
And that's become a very big need for the kinds of businesses we work with where they're trying to find cheaper. And we think we found something that works. So that gives us confidence. We've acquired a lot of customers this year because of that. And for us, we don't want businesses to shrink for obvious reasons, but we have an attractive offering for businesses that are shrinking. All right. Back to Kevin again. So in terms of market participation, then are you worried that maybe the foreign investors may not be stepping up to uh, help boost the markets going into next year also? And what are like the kind of things that worry you about the markets going into next year? If you look at uh, the statistics and if you even just go back to earlier, 2015, you'll generally uh, notice and in 2017, so if you're looking at 2015, 2016, and when you had the election, is foreigners tend to stay out and they'll start doing that if lucky a few weeks too. But generally, they tend, tend to stay out a month or two to the election. Of course, we haven't had a good history on our elections, especially if you start back at 2007, 2008, and then back in 2013 and then 2017. So we tend to see some foreign direct investment flight, but generally capital flight to uh, safer havens. And I expect that to be the case towards the coming year. But as I mentioned earlier, December, January generally tend to be the uh, holiday months or holiday season. So we might not see quite some inflow in January, of course, for obvious reasons. Most of the fund managers are not back in the office. And we start to see those meetings of the uh, strategy meetings and forecasting meetings. But I expect to see business as usual in February, March, probably up to around July or late June. And then thereafter, as I mentioned again, it's going to be uh, quite slow up to around, say, November, I guess, dependent on how the election res uh, results and how the country generally behaves. So it's a given that you're going to see some capital flight in the run-up towards the election. And well, just to add to his point, even for us in terms of trying to prepare capital for 2022, we have a very, very strict deadline to do that no later than June, July so in terms of variables, we're trying to eliminate variables for second half of the year and just basically do all the planning and so on that we need to do in the first half and then have to just wait until 2023. It sounds though like half a year may actually be lost in terms of economic momentum just because of elections. I'm not so sure what we can do. Maybe Kwame can help us out. It's sad that elections impact business to that extent, that business are more like pessimistic about the second half of next year. But before Kwame answers, there's a question here for you, June. Given that you're going to an election here, what would be your advice for startups and the intended growth projections under these considerations of COVID and again an election year next year? And maybe to add on top of that, if you're raising, especially from external investors, they most likely will point out the fact that the Kenya is known to be an election kind of hotspot, so to speak. Yeah. So how do you convince them to still invest in you? Because business has to go on at the end of the day. In terms of projections, I honestly don't know how to advise. I think every business thinks differently about projections. I would say naturally the wise thing is to be conservative, right? But as someone literally pointed out to me yesterday, you can have your own internal goals and projections and your external goals need not be the same. So what I think, be ambitious internally, but in terms of what you may be communicating to outside investors or so on, I, I mean, one needs to be careful, right? Because otherwise you can set yourself 
into a trap by overpromising, particularly in a period where you do not have control of, of the macro factors. And then in terms of raising, I'm generally very honest. I'm not one of those people who sells a fantasy. I've never been, and in Senga, we don't do that. There's always some kind of conversation, even now, around just the macroeconomic environment or the shilling depreciating or what have you. So for, for us, it's the same as it's always been in terms of talking about difficult things. But again, the other thing is, I mean, businesses are cyclical, good business people or the average business person knows that. I think it was this year where I was seeing articles talking about, for example, the businesses that came up during the financial um, collapse a little bit over a decade ago, right? Some of the very big and successful companies we see today started in a very, in a period of great, great economic duress globally, right? So I think from a storytelling perspective, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, again, if you can show that you can do well in a bad period, then you definitely can do well when the environment is lifting you up. So for me, I, I see some of these things as a selling point. Good. Ben, maybe your projections going into next year. And you haven't talked about ESG, so I wanted you to also comment about it. I don't think the, the, the biggest factor is the election passing, but I just think the, the cumulative effect of all these small pockets. So you have an election coming up. You're trying to handle a pandemic and with new, new variants. We are still having a drought within the country and people trying you know, to handle that. You're entering a high inflation period. I think it's just the cumulative all that that actually amplifies the political and look like a really big factor. And also not forgetting we have the Supreme Court between the 18th and the 20th of January. So I think that was off for the year. So I'm saying in terms of like investors holding back and capital flights, I, I think that will also be on the consumption side. So we'll see a lot of people holding on, for example, buying durables and, and of course, that's going to have an effect on private consumption and you know how much money goes around uh, the economy. So that that makes my outlook quite uh, uh, conservative. There, there are two things I would like to see more, and, and this is not specific to the country, but I think African economies more generally, because uh, from where I see these are sleeping giants. I think one and they're creative, and I think how governments are going to maneuver policies to incentivize you know a digital economy. It's going to really matter. If you get it wrong on the policy side, government can really become a stumbling block uh, to the digital and creative economy within Africa. I don't know how we're going to unlock that. There was a lot of area argument. And to be honest, I think it's been slower than many people would have expected. I, I don't know what should be done, but I think you know there's a lot of potential around intra-Africa trade and the digital economy for anyone listening. On the climate side, or ESG, environmental and governance issues, uh, we, we are seeing, I think, more and more climate risk across African countries. One, of course, is the drought we are seeing within the Eastern Africa uh, region. Further in the south, if you look at Southern African countries, there's huge exposure to ocean-induced or water-related climate risk within likes of Mozambique, and of course, we are seeing increased desertification in the north. The, the challenge being that, you know, while there is a very huge risk in that area, there is very little financing, and I think my focus would be within at least the next three years, we're going to see a lot of financial innovation in the green government. We're going to see sovereign green bonds, bond coming up. There's going to be a green component, at least as Treasury has said it. 
and we are going to see a lot of capital raising uh, for the green economy going forward so my focus for the year is, is quite uh, uh, conservative thanks now that you mentioned something about the green economy something just took hard to me of course you all understand that there's this very big study by miguel and um, fisman i think 10 years ago which shows that droughts in africa tend to precipitate uh, crisis and insecurity and so one of the things that i think is a real concern for me about increasing desertification or at least that the world is getting warmer my view is that that is real whether it's whatever is creating it or whether it's carbon or not is a different discourse is that there's the possibility that actually african societies or governments will become increasingly fragile because of the possibility of internecine conflict so i keep africa generally speaking about specific countries especially those in the sahel but also in other parts of this country i mean largely assault areas and, and stuff like that so it adds to a political risk for the african continent in general and i am glad that ruben thinks that there's going to be innovation for the green economy and to expand and to respond to that i mean that will be desperately required and it's something to actually watch as one of the things that will determine that so that's the first the second one is just africa's demography obviously couple of weeks back it was forecast for china this week i think it's tacky and of course india is going to run one i think next year as well for african countries and this cooperation agreements with the largest countries and the geopolitics around it is something to watch as well being as lessons i hear many of them would be concerned and watching african elections as well as too so we need to find a way to actually use the opportunity of elections because my view is that in fractured societies such as kenya and all these others elections will always be uh, very noisy but business people need to be able to detect the signal from the noise and my view is those who advise them need to be able to tell them because sometimes i think the opportunity on account of fears which might be very real but not properly measured in terms of i mean just the scaling to distinguish between what the uncertainty is and what actually the real risk is and everybody treats it as if there's complete uncertainty so for 2022 in kenya i think there's going to be elections for given the nature of the political formations in this place whatever is going to result is going to be a messy coalition government which sometimes also makes it very very difficult for progressive policy to be done but i think what's going to discipline whoever comes in next year will be constrained by the state of the economy next year and uh, that's a good thing because obviously when it comes to that there are few choices that have to be made one of those obviously is to discipline public spending uh, we'll have this start the difficult discussion about letting go of public assets that are in very very sad state So for instance I think many of you saw a letter that was circulating yesterday showing that the postal service in Kenya which has some of the most prime assets in any town in Kenya top 50 towns in Kenya is paying October salaries on the 17th which is today and that was a letter from the finance manager assuring workers about that those are wasted resources that a decent decent private sector manager it doesn't have to be top guys just a medium private sector manager would do fantastic work with so those are some of the discussions that will have to be made and whether they're made before the election so after that i think it would be a good thing for kenya to go through that cycle thanks well, maybe a question to you kwame do you feel like we'll have the zambia moment where we come in and actually realize the situation is much worse than we've been kind of capitalizing for a while yes i think that the reason it's guaranteed is because government's total obligations and people may shout all they want to about the imf and the world bank 
it's actually become clear to us because we suspected it as the IEA. And our estimate was that the government of Kenya had obligations that were hidden, contingent liabilities, close to about 600, 700 million, just putting together back of the envelope discussions. If you remember the budget policy statement, which was part of the requirements that were made, I don't know why mem no members of parliament are actually putting it at 1.3 trillion, 13, 14% of GDP. And, and we're not over counting it yet. So obviously, whoever comes in with rosy expectations that you're going to dish out jobs for the boys and contracts for them, I think we are going to have to, they're going to have to strap themselves quite a bit. So modest expectations are necessary. Whether they know it or not is a different matter altogether. And perhaps that's also a good opportunity for restructuring the state. Thanks. I think you're starting to wrap up. I would like just go a little bit more personal and ask maybe your personal kind of what you learned this year from a personal perspective and maybe some books or uh, notes that you'd recommend people to read that you may have read this year. So I think that would be a good uh, place to start wrapping up for the evening. Uh, maybe we can start with uh, Kevin. Thanks, Eric. I think I've learned this year has been just surviving on little and just saving up as much as I possibly could and investing whatever I don't need. So it's been basically living off on the basics and investing any of the cash I generally use on luxurious goods or in Kenya going out and drinking and all that stuff. So the money markets, the, the financial markets in general have been a very good creator and a very good place to place your disposable income. So I've really invested and gotten a chance to learn, especially with the working from home, you know, looking at the stocks you never looked at uh, before, especially for the life of a trader. We mostly look at the NSC 20 because that's generally where the foreign investors would be, what the foreign investors would be looking at. So we more so sort of tend to ignore uh, most of the other stocks for the retail investors or some of them for the institutional investors. So I can comfortably say I've looked at, I think, each and every of the 65 listed counters. I've looked at the derivative space. I've done quite some self-training on derivatives. We have created, together with the Nairobi Securities Exchange and a member of the CMA group that will generally advise the NSC and the CMA, both as SROs or self-programs, what institutional investors we sort of became a bridge uh, between institutional and foreign and the organizations like NSC and CMA. So just talking of regulations on reporting, on data, as you all know, NSC. I think I have an issue with my connectivity, sorry. Yeah. All right, uh, you can close later. Let's maybe have June first and then Ruben and then finally. Okay, so you want me to answer the same question? Just on a personal note and maybe books and resources that you can share. Okay, well, I think my first lesson is that a healthy level of detachment is healthy. And I know that sentence has two same words. I've always been invested in my work and I've always functioned like an owner, no matter the environment. But when you start something, it's like a different level of emotion that you cannot anticipate and that cannot be explained to you, even if you think you have understood it and anticipated it. And I think this year I learned how to at least separate my personality a bit from the business. And it's been good for me and for the people around me. And then I, I think the second thing is having the courage to make tough decisions around both the people you work with in terms of team members and also even the customers you work with. So I tend to be very emotionally attached to people, including team members. But sometimes I think you need to know when that is not serving you well. And you need to make maybe a difficult call. And I mean, even with customers, we've had the habit of sort of like suffering with people. And I think this year we've just said we're going to 
uh, put a stop to that. So even though someone may offer the business good revenue or top line revenue, if we're not collecting and you're not paying us, it literally does not matter how much you're making us. We don't care about the optics of high revenue if you're not going to meet your payments and just having to make calls and say, okay, like we cannot move forward. But also, I mean, sort of being understanding as well, because for example, as a young company that's that's gone through a lot, when some of our customers are going through a lot, we just give them grace because we do know what grace means when someone gives you an extra several weeks or whatever, or even sometimes months to pay for something. So both being empathetic, but also knowing sometimes when to cut the cord. In terms of book recommendations, I, I mean, to be honest, I can't remember the last time I completed a book, so I would be totally lying and pretentious if I were recommending books. So I think maybe what I can recommend is the books we are required to read in our company. So there's Lean Startup, which I mentioned before. There's the checklist. Uh, the checklist was written by, I forget his name now, but he's a famous like US surgeon or, sur- or surgeon general. Because we're a highly operational company in logistics where uh, things can go wrong by the smallest pr- breach of process, we try to emphasize you know, using checklists, but not in the general way we understand them, in the way that people in complex environments like airlines and hospitals use them to effectively save lives and stop planes from falling down. And then the third book, this one was a book we discovered this year, The One Thing. I strongly recommend it. The one thing I think is a game changer, both on a personal level and as a professional, in terms of understanding what literally the word priority means and how to plan. So effectively, it says there's no such thing as two priorities. You just have one priority and you figure out what it is you're going to accomplish towards that one priority. It just simplifies things and enables one to also come up with solutions that are, I think, sweeping it sort of helps with also addressing things at the root cause versus symptomatic things. The fourth book I would say is High Output Management. That one is not recommended for even, we have, we've bought the book and anyone in the company can read it, but if you're a manager, you must read it. And I, I think that one, is, it's good not just for managers, but for really each individual. That one was written by Andy, Andy Grove, who was an Intel CEO who passed away. And I think particularly for young people in a very competitive global environment. People do need to be conscious that they're not just competing with themselves or the people within their immediate team in the company or other companies in the ecosystem, but it's a globally competitive world. And we all must function that way if we want to survive into the future. And then a book I I was recommended to by actually Faris Kairuki, who was on the street of space recently, is From Impossible to Inevitable. It's an awesome, awesome book. I needed to interview someone last week. One of the biggest areas that are, at least for me, that I've found uh, that is difficult to sort of attack, if you will, for lack of a better word, is sales. I find building a sales force to be an extremely difficult thing. And this book just helped me like very, very quickly home into what we needed, asking the right questions and things like that. That would be my book list. Thank you. Uh, Ruben and then Kwame on the same. Thanks, Eric. I just wanted to respond to or add to two things that had been mentioned earlier. I think one, Kwame had mentioned about the importance of focus and, you know, how different people view different things. 
And I just wanted to add emphasis, at least for policymakers, focus matter a lot. Some of you might have missed, but two days ago, Brazil decided to kick out the IMF permanent rep because they disagreed on the growth focus for Brazil. I think the IMF said it contracted by 9% and the government account said 4%. And the decision was, they just said, you know, once his term is over in June, he should leave. The IMF said, okay. So, I mean, it's just showing that focus can be quite a sensitive thing, making full, close, full country missions. Uh, I think, uh, Kwame, you also mentioned about like fiscal space. And I know that was mostly from a national government perspective. But I also wanted to add, I think one thing that is also happening in terms of a lot of fiscal uh, mismanagement is also in the counties. I attended the Devolution Conference and I got to speak to a lot of people uh, in the counties, including governors. And I was very keen and I just realized even the, how the conversations, talking to like first-time governors and like second-time governors, there's a lot of apathy in the second-time governors. It's mostly, there's a lot of, at least what I could pick, there's a lot of concern about the 2022 election and, you know, probably where they're going to be. I could tell the conversation first-time governors, they're more keen on where they want to see the counties. And even if they want to be re-elected, they're thinking about continuity. So I think the mismanagement we are seeing, if we shed enough light on the counties, we'll, we'll actually realize there's a whole lot of fiscal mess uh, happening in the counties. Two, two things I wanted to mention, in terms of demography, and uh, there are two things that concern me in this country. I think one is we have a very huge talent pool. And of course, like today, there were graduations and all these people going into the job market. But also, if you look into the job market, we are very highly service sector economy. But also, if you look at the quality of jobs, many of the jobs we have are actually low-skilled jobs. And uh, a lot of them are even do- are domestic, so they are not tradable per se. So just being at that intersection where you have very low-quality jobs in an economy and, uh, and a lot of knowledge workers, then it means there's, there's quite a bit of supply-demand mismatch in terms of our labor market, and our labor market is far from optimal. So just putting that out there, and, and, and that's why every few days on Twitter, there's something, yeah, topic being discussed about how people want to leave the country and, and all that stuff. So anyone looking into areas to look at for the economy, I think Kenya's labor market is an interesting uh, place to start. Around manufacturing and, 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 and industry, GDP services, and I think there is still a lot that needs to be done on the industry or manufacturing route. I mean, I've seen a lot of countries saying, oh, you know, we're going to set up vaccine manufacturing plants. We've seen, like, for example, you know, agreements, MOUs with BioNTech, with Rwanda and Senegal to produce mRNA. And sometimes I just ask if there's appetite for vaccine manufacturing, then there's a whole lot more things that we could potentially manufacture if there wasn't a pandemic. So, yeah, so and, and here I'm just putting these thoughts out there, something to think more keenly on how we can build manufacturing and industry sectors, you know, far from the over-reliance on service sector. Uh, so, yeah, those are my parting shots. In terms of recommendations, this time of the year, Eric, from 15th of December, I'm less reading and, and more watching and listening. One, one recommendation, this is very personal, that I like, uh, whether you celebrate Christmas or not, I think they are great. I recommend listening to Pentatonics. I think they are a great uh, music group. And uh, if you like Christmas carols, I, I mean, I think they do justice to it. And even if you don't celebrate Christmas, I think Pentatonics is a great group to listen to. In terms of books, I think a good autobiography I read this year 
is called The Ride of a Lifetime by former CEO of Walt Disney, Robert Eager. I, I think it's a fantastic uh, autobiography by a business leader, uh, which I would highly recommend, The Ride of a Lifetime. And I think one more book I'll recommend, especially if you work in the knowledge economy or service sector, is Deep Work uh, by Carl Newport. I think it's an interesting look of how to uh, deal with distraction and all this demand for our attention when sometimes you really want to get some work done. So Deep Work is amazing. And I think the last two recommendations, because I like podcasts a lot, uh, one would be, you know, listening to his newsletter. He has an amazing newsletter, which I really like. I mean, top-notch ideas. And for those who follow Naval, you know, he has very unconventional ideas, which I think is great. And lastly, is one of my favorite podcasts uh, by Tim Ferriss. He brings on very many guests, and for each podcast, he has a really good, like, top-down of what the, the topic of discussion is. So, yeah, so Robert Eager, In of a Lifetime, Deep Work by Cal Newport, uh, Naval Ferris, and listening to music by Pentatonix. Thanks. May I add another book? I totally forgot this. If there's one book I had, you know, if I could recommend one book and not any other book, it would be, this is for business people. It's The Innovator's Dilemma, or it's Follow on the Innovator's Solution by Clayton Christensen. Christensen, excuse me. I think it's the most important business book ever written. So that's, I think, the one overall book I recommend to anyone who is either starting a business or who is running a business. And it, when people hear about disruption theory and those sorts of things, disruption is a word that is often incorrectly used. This book explains exactly what disruption is and the different kinds of disruption and how to think about disruption. Like one of the key takeaways, for example, is even if you're a disruptor, the moment you start your organization, you're the one who's going to be disrupted. So you, ca- you effectively cannot disrupt yourself, right? So it really influences how one thinks about not just entering a market, but also sustaining competitive advantage. Christensen is such a great uh, writer himself. I know he's influenced a lot of the people who ended up forming tech companies, so they read a lot about him, so that's a really good recommendation. I think he is the one who came up with some of the brilliant ideas, some of which are like network effects, some of which are also been the basis of some of the social media networks that you've seen out here. That's a really good recommendation. It's on my to-read list and some of the books that you shared also. I think we'll compile them and share them uh, perhaps tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I think Kwame is having some serious issues. Kevin has some recommendations. Thanks, Eric. First, I'd like to tell Ruben that I'm also a big fan of Pentatonic and they do an amazing job, especially on Christmas carols and everything. They just recompose songs or sing their own naturals and it's amazing. I love them. And then one of the things I've been asked quite frequently throughout 2021 has been on Forex. People want to learn Forex, trading, and all that stuff. And uh, guys asked me how, for one of these, how would one then get to learn about it? I think one of the recommendations I've given people and I've seen uh, quite some positive feedback on is a YouTube channel that's called Baby Pips. So baby, then P-I-P-S. So just Baby Pips. And it will just teach you from learner to uh, a sophisticated learner. So that's one thing that has I've really enjoyed myself this year. When it comes to the books, I think uh, my all-time favorite writer still remains Benjamin Graham. I really love The Intelligent Investor. I find myself, I've read it, I think, three times. I find myself reading it every time on board. And for those who don't know, The Intelligent Investor is about generally value investing. 
which is focused on generally steady long-term profits by ignoring the current market and picking companies with high intrinsic value. So Benjamin Graham is one of the guys I've really enjoyed. My second recommendation would be a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. So this is a book written by two professors, Chan Kim and Rene. I think it's, uh, she's French, Rene Mobo, or Mobo. I don't know how to pronounce that name. And the Blue Ocean Strategy is not just for guys in the stock market. This is a book for anyone wanting to do anything, especially people in business. So this is a book that uh, shows you uh, how to create uncontested market space, how to make the competition irrelevant, how to create and capture new demand, how to break the value cost trade-off, how to align the whole system of the firm's activities in pursuit of differentiation and low cost and so on and so forth. So this is something that I've felt uh, while reading has also really transformed me. So my final book that I've read this year is a book called Execution. Again, this is for business people. And this is a book uh, written by Larry. This is the former CEO of Honeywell. For those who don't know Honeywell, this is a registered company in the U.S. that primarily operates in four areas of business, and that is aerospace, building technologies, performance materials, and productivity solutions, or safety productivity solutions, or SPS. So the former CEO, Larry, wrote this book called The Execution, and this is a book that will generally show you how to connect your clients to yourself, how to how to sell out there, how to go about your deliverables in a timely and fashionable manner, how not how just not to copy and paste, how to create and reinvent things. So he's very good in this book, The Execution, and you can find all these books on Amazon where I got them. So those would be my three uh, top books. It's unfortunate we may not be able to have Kwame back. For me, the books that I've read uh, this year, I, I, I intended to read 52 books, but somehow I've read only seven, so it's quite an ambition. Uh, but I think I've read a book on a recommendation from a friend, a book called Oversubscribed. It's about building uh, uh, really good audiences. I think the subtitle is how to get people lining up uh, to do business with. I've also read a little bit, if you want an investing book, uh, The Psychology of Money is very light. It's a light reading with very good and actionable thoughts. It's around 12 chapters and each chapter is actually separate. So you can start anywhere and start reading. And some of the thoughts you get from the book is about just instead of trying to beat the markets, selecting individual stocks, just invest in maybe an index and then you'll be okay. I'm reading a book called Outsiders. There's another book, I, I but I've, I've forgotten a little bit. I, I really like startup stories. I, I like breakthrough stories where like they were struggling for a while and then you find this one moment, something works out and then they're able to, to do well in their business. So I think that's... I, I recommend that book. And I would also second Kevin's book, The Intelligent Investor. It's really written in a bit older language. So I think if you can find even a summary of it, it's a good book to read also. Now uh, we'll go to closing comments. So I'll start with uh, Ruben and then Kevin and then June in the end. Ruben, closing comments. Yeah, my, my closing comment, I think I'd I'd like to direct it to Mongo Capital. Uh, I think this is a good platform that you've created, Eric and team to help us connect on African markets. So mine is to say good job and uh, kudos to you and your team. Thank you. Kevin? Thanks, Eric. So my closing comments generally would be just to wish everyone here, to you and your family, to you and you, just to wish you 
uh, a good health, especially during this pandemic and the, the flu that we've been seeing going around and going into a festive season. Of course, we're going to see quite some menace on the roads. So just drive safe. I hope you're safe. I hope you and your family are safe and glad tidings and happy holidays. June, you can close off for us. Uh, Kwame is not able to rejoin, but he'll send a list of resources that uh, he wants to share with us and is very grateful. June? Okay. okay. I think, as you know, I really dislike NCBA as a bank, but they have a really great slogan and it's go for it. So I would say go for it, no matter what's happening next year with the elections and whatnot. And also good night and thank you. I think maybe just to second June, that is also a slogan I've really used almost the whole of this year in the last. So the go for it slogan is something I believe in. It's something I love. I'm indifferent about NCBA, the bank. I've worked for them for, <laughs> and I bank with them, but there are also things I don't love about them. But the slogan is really, really good. And for everyone, just go for it. Great. I think uh, for banks, uh, June has an entire essay, especially NCBA. So I think you should check out that. But I think banks ought to behave better. I think that's especially the reason the recent issues I've seen on social media. A lot of banks are really not uh, treating their clients well. I'm happy at Stanchat myself. I hope all of you can come there also. But anyway, that said, thank you so much for joining us in the spaces this year. It's amazing that you actually started uh, the year with around 20 followers and you're finishing with almost 11,000. It speaks a lot to the kind of community that we created and mostly because we just stepped out and just went and did it. And somehow along the way, we've been joined by amazing people. And it's really nice that some of them are the speakers here, Ruben, Kevin, June. Kwame has also been there. Sud is in the audience. Boniface, uh, I told him at the beginning of the year, let's write a small newsletter. I think the first newsletter, we sent it to five people and they liked it and then we expanded it. And now we are at around 450 people at the end of the year. We started off with Boniface just writing stuff and the people came along. I see also Fares, so one of our early speakers. Namsia, we partnered with her a lot on trainings. And also I see Ben Roberts. He was also one of our early speakers also. I see also Eric, a fellow worker at Mwango. He joined us in June. Becky is not here with us today, but she works a lot in the background to make sure that the Twitter spaces. And I think also something else that we also want to do is to write out what our reflections have been in terms of men making Twitter spaces. We've learned a lot to actually make the quality of uh, spaces that we've had this year. We've had to rely a lot on our processes and those kind of processes are really good to share with others uh, so that you can learn. We are an open learning platform, so we really enjoy it when others learn from us and also we learn from them. And so in the end also, we're very, very grateful that you've been joining us for the spaces every Friday. Uh, we want to take a two-week break and then we'll be back early next year again with a really nice list of speakers. We have like a really packed first half of next year, but we also have really great hosts. What we're doing also is partnering with some people. They can be hosts to the Twitter spaces. It's just a platform that we created. We don't own it. We love it if you also come and partner. We also have Saturday Reads, by the way. So if you want to actually share some of the resources that you're reading, just ping us and we'll definitely do a compilation of them. And uh, so we take a two-week break, but we'll be back. The platform will keep going. We'll keep sharing all the information and lessons that we learn. What I wanted to say is really, really grateful that you've been able to join us this year to build Mwango to where it is. So from our hearts to yours and from our home to yours, uh, we want to say a big, big, big thank you to the Mwango Capital team. Be blessed and see you again early next year.